those who don't know me, my name's Matt, I'm also one of the ministers here, um, and I uh, am launching our new sermon series. If we could bring up the uh, PowerPoint, that'd be marvellous. Here it is. Jesus-flavoured culture, waking up to the flavour of who we are, how we live, who we're meant to be. Um, and before I talk more about that, I, uh, I've brought with me a few things. Um, I want to stop asking, anyone here consider themselves a foodie? Hmm? Anyone consider there's a few hands? Come on. Who, all right, who likes watching the food channels and the cooking shows and all that on the TV? Anyone like watching those? Yeah, a few more hands. All right, we'll see. We'll see uh, how you guys get on because there has been an absolute change in uh, food culture in this country since the 80s, hasn't there? Like, unbelievable. Maybe since the 90s, thinking about it. Finders, crispy pancakes and turkey Twizzlers. Nothing wrong with those. Um... But it has. So in the old days, you were most likely finding your cupboard. Some of these, anyone got these in the cupboard? Hands up if you got those. Nice, yeah. The Oxo Cube, a beautiful thing. Um, and also probably a dusty old set of mixed herbs. Anyone got some of them? Oh, I remember a bit of mixed herbs. Can you? Lovely thing. What else would we probably have in our cupboards back then? Not quite sure, but these days, I'm going to run through some of the crazy and lovely things that we have now. These are, I just asked my wife to get some random ones. Cumin, that's quite common. Got cumin? Bit of ground turmeric. Hey, makes a nice curry or a uh, chilli. What else have I got here? Oh, it's a nice one. Whole nutmeg. Anyone got those? We grate those now, don't we? We don't just use the powder. That's a bit posh. Uh, oh, tarragon. There's a beauty. Anyone? If you don't know and like tarragon, go for it. I tell you, put that on some fish, on some potatoes. Absolutely amazing. Right, what else we got? Herbe de Provence. Posh person's mixed herbs, same thing, pay a bit more. Um, fennel seeds, anyone like those ones? Quite nice, yeah, Ali at the back, yeah, love my fennel. Basil, dried basil, not to be recommended, I'll be honest, no idea what you do with that, put it in, makes no difference. Fresh basil, absolutely lovely. Sweet smoked paprika, anyone a fan? Yeah, we like that. All these flavours just in our cupboard. Chinese five spice, that's a good one, that's got um, star anise in it, hasn't it? That's good. Whoa, it smells, ooh, it smells like a blackjack. Do you remember blackjack sweets? That's what that smells like, that's marvellous. All right, let's be quick on this. All these are getting nice. I think we've done cardamom pods. No, we haven't. Cardamom pods, like those, they're the ones when you're having some rice or a curry and you bite something and you go, what on earth that? It's those. Um, <laughs> saffron, you get like three tiny little bits of it in a whole jar. <laughs> you like that one? Yeah, we like using that. All right, and a couple of, a couple of others. Oh, here's a posh one. Well, not a posh one, an unusual one. I love this one. Who's got dried fenugreek leaves in their uh, cupboard? Yeah? Yes! Right, Carl. Yes, fantastic. These are the secret ingredient to butter chicken curry. If you're ever making butter chicken curry, if it doesn't have dried fenugreek in, it's not the real deal. There you go. Told you. You can go home now. Learn something. Um, brilliant. All right, final, final ones then I've got. Chili oil. Who's got a bit of chili on? Now, the trouble is with chili, loads of these herbs and spices are really nice. Chili's one of the ones, if you get it wrong, it absolutely takes over the dish, doesn't it? And also, if you're preparing it and just later decide to just scratch your nose and tweak your eye, you really know about it, don't you? Anyone ever had chili eye? That is a horrendous thing. Handle with care. How about this one? Truffle oil. Ooh. That's the kind of guy I am. Yeah. How <laughs> you got my number, eh? Truffle oil. Oh, oh, I love it. Pop that on some pasta. 
That's lead pastor, is it? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, you can get it cheap in Sainsbury's, about £3 a pot, not too bad at all. Um, the first time I had truffle, I remember I was in, it's going to make me sound very, very posh, uh, I was in, I believe, uh, was it Milan or Florence, you know, as you do, one of those uh, Italian cities, and uh, we didn't really have a clue what we were doing, and I'd never had them before, I'd read about them in a book, and so I ordered truffle on steak, and I kid you not, the, the, the Italian chef must have sliced an entire black truffle on this thing, and it stank out the entire restaurant. I kid you not. And I'm, I don't know what I was, 15, sat there with this stinking thing I've never eaten before, sweating my way through. I ate about a quarter of it and quietly pushed it away. I now love truffle, but that is a seriously powerful flavour. It's interesting, Jesus called us a flavour, didn't he? The flavour he chose, and he could have chosen any of these Beautiful spices that would have been around, maybe herbs. He chose salt. Jesus chose salt. He could have said you are the cumin of the world, couldn't he? <laughs> You're the smoked paprika of life. He didn't. <laughs> that sounds like a terrible gift card, doesn't it? <laughs> You're the smoked paprika of my life. Um, don't think it would go down well. Um, Valentine's Day. Um, he said, <laughs> making myself chuckle. He said, You're the salt of the earth. I'm going to leave the salt there. A couple of things, just as, before we even move on from that, I find interesting. One, salt is the antidote to bland. Okay, salt is supposed to wake up a dish. Unseasoned food, bland. Still nice, but salt gives a punch that makes it lip-smackingly delicious. Jesus is saying, you're people who should pack a punch, make life different, punchy, noticeably good. And salt, the second thing I want you just to pick up there, is that salt's not a flavour that's designed to be or designed to be used on its own, to work on its own, is it? Mm, what's your favourite flavour? Salt. No, no no one really. I mean, you might like salty crisps, but really they're salty and potatoey and oily and delicious. The salt is what lifts the flavour. You see, salt is designed to bring out the goodness and the flavour of everything that's already in the dish. And it's really interesting, missionally, when you think about that. Jesus didn't call us the chilli of the world to dominate and take over and just quash all of the flavours. No. He called us the seasoning that draws out the good in everything else and makes it taste better. Salt doesn't make sense on its own. How you live, Jesus is saying, should transform the lives of others and society around you and bring out the best, something that is pleasing and beautiful to God. Another way of saying this is that you and I are called to be people whose way of life transforms the culture around us. You see, Jesus didn't just want us to be disciples who sit in a corner learning good facts about God. It's literally not the picture. He wanted his followers to be utterly transformed into those who carried the culture of his Father's kingdom into this world so that they could begin in turn to transform the stuffy, the religious, the secular cultures all around Jesus wants us to be part of the answer to the Lord's prayer. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Oh, that the culture of heaven would invade earth. 
Jesus says, you're part of that. You're the salt that's going to make that happen. And that's what's at the heart of this sermon series, waking up the flavour of who we are, realising this call on our lives. It's also at the heart of our vision as a church. Oh, we were clicking on the wrong thing. Vic, if we can escape on the green screen, that's it. Bring this one over. Perfect. Um, Part of our vision as a church. Um, This, you'll notice, it's not just a list, a tick list of things we want to do. It's a picture of who we're called to be. A vision that we might become a people who are totally Jesus-flavoured in the way we do church, in the values we hold, in the culture we live out and cherish and demonstrate when we gather here together, but also when we're then apart and sent out into our homes and businesses and neighbourhoods and workplaces. We want to become a welcoming community of spirit-filled worshippers, first and foremost, where everyone plays their part in seeing individuals and families and our communities transformed by the presence and compassion of Jesus. We want to be salty. We want to be salty. We're called to this way of life, of welcoming the stranger, of prioritising worship, of being those filled with expectation that God's actually alive and is going to do things, is going to transform lives even today, who are rooted in his compassion and love. Every single one of us are called to a life packed full of flavour, vibrant, Passionate, spirit-filled, God-loving, difference-making followers of the King. Not an insipid, under-seasoned, beige brigade of religious recluses. What a great sentence that is. <laughs> I'm going to read it again. What are we not called to be? An insipid, under-seasoned, beige brigade of re- religious recluses. There you go. That's what we're not going to be. Like an insipid tomato. you ever eaten a tomato and gone, that looks great, and put it in your mouth and gone, wow, what am I eating? Mush. It's disgusting. But the real thing filled with flavour and juice and saltiness and savouriness and sweetness all in one. An extraordinary thing. We are called to pack a punch. We're called to be teachers and lawyers and builders and soldiers and businessmen and women and mothers and fathers and friends who have something to say, who make an impact on this world, who have an unmistakable flavour that is good, that is different, that is noticed. And friends, this is not about personality types. I'm not calling you all to become way extroverts. This is about saltiness. Some of the quietest and most gentle people I know have been the most salty people in my life. Because when they turned up, they brought with them the presence and values and culture of God. And it transformed things. They didn't have to be the centre of the party and make a song and dance. But they were salty. My grandma was one of them. The heart of our vision, we want to become a church that demonstrates to the world what a Jesus-flavoured, life-transforming, God-honouring culture, way of life really is. And that's what this sermon series is about. The people we're called to be. The first aspect of this we're looking at this morning is that we're called to be a people of radical welcome. As followers of Jesus... We're called to be people who model a truly radical welcome to the outcast. We need to escape on that one, Vic, if that's right. I was going to keep doing it. So you need to not have the, uh, the green screen up at all. It needs to be minimised, if that's all right. 
We need to give a radical welcome to the outcast, to the vulnerable, to the stranger. So let's have a little look together and whiz through this passage. Um, There it is. Let's have a look at that. Let's have a look at that, shall we, every now and then. Just sneak that one up. Yeah, that's great. That's working good. Thanks, Vic. And I want to start by looking at this uh, scripture passage. Did it come back up? Someone chuckled. Um, And we see it's a dinner party. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house. He reclined at the table. It's a story about hospitality and welcome. Simon has laid a table. He's bought food. It's been cooked. He's invited Jesus to teach his friends. Come eat with him. At first sight, it seems like Simon has done all things well. This is the model of good hospitality and welcome. A feast for all, like Mark's this morning. But we quickly discover that actually, this was just a charade of good welcome. We dig a little deeper, and although on the surface it looked good, the welcome here was superficial. We discover that Simon offered no water for his guests. He greeted them with no kiss. He provided no oil for their hair. These were common cultural aspects of a good welcome. They were totally missing. It was actually a very limited welcome he gave Jesus. It was a just about get away with it welcome. I'll provide food, but no oil. I'll give you a meal, but you're going to have to sort out your own water for your feet. This was a welcome on Simon's terms. This was a superficial welcome under Simon's rules. Something unexpected was about to happen that would reveal just how superficial and how shallow this welcome was. Something that went well beyond the boundaries of Simon's welcome. And it's that moment, Scripture says, where a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at Simon's house. So she came there with this alabaster jar of perfume. She stood behind Jesus. So they're all around. She invades. She comes on in. She stands behind Jesus at his feet, weeping. She begins to to wet his feet with her tears. She wipes them with her hair. She kisses them and poured perfume on them. And when Simon saw this, said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Simon was in disgust. He could cope with Jesus and his friends and other well-behaved observers, just about permittable, as long as they kept quiet. But she, this sinful woman making a scene, she most definitely wasn't welcome. There is a limit to Simon's welcome and she was it. And I just want to start by noting it's easy to assume we're good at welcome. (laughs) It's easy to assume that we're great welcomers. I like to be seen to be welcoming, but I wonder if we really are. I wonder if sometimes we only actually offer a limited welcome on our own terms to people we're comfortable with in a way we're comfortable with. As church, as individuals, are we really welcome, welcoming. We might metaphorically lay the table and put out the food, or physically, but do we set the agenda, dictate the rules, invite only certain people, keep an eye on the clock, keep everything in control? If someone steps out of line or causes a scene, well, is it probably best that they just go? I want you to think for a moment, what are the limits of your welcome to others? Just have a moment to think about that question. Well, it's at this moment typically as Jesus does and you'll see so much of Jesus teaching isn't out of the blue it's so often in response to the culture of the day the culture of the day does something that Jesus goes oh this is not the father's heart this is not the kingdom culture and it's at that moment that Jesus brings in some teaching over and over and over again we see Jesus do that and this is one of those moments 
He begins to kick back against the culture that Simon had set. This is what welcome looks like and no more. Kicks against the cultural norms and he kicks against the welcome uh, that was within Simon's control and he models something totally different. It's far beyond our own comfort and control. You see, there is no denying, uh, so I'm going to talk about this culture of radical welcome, and I'm going to start by talking about a welcome beyond our own comfort and control. There is no denying that this was uncomfortable and painfully awkward moment. It really was. I don't know if you've ever been around a meal table. You probably have. I don't want to stir up bad memories. Where there's been an argument, or there's been an argument before it, and everyone's pretending there hasn't been one. You know that moment? Or it blows up on the table, someone says something and it goes, and then someone stands up, throws the cutlery down, leaves the room, and everyone's just carrying on. These, uh, <laughs> these potatoes are rather nice, aren't they? Uh, I like the uh, Herbe de Provence, very nice. You know? Awkward. Imagine that moment. This was ten times, a hundred times worse when this woman, known to be a sinner, possibly even a prostitute, barges in uninvited, begins to make a scene. Most of us would have squirmed at the very least. Then she begins to cry and sob and make noises and clasp onto Jesus' feet. Oh, what's going on? Then her tears are running down over them. You can imagine the response, people getting up. What are you doing? Stop people choking on their food, spitting out their bread. What is happening? We're trying to eat here, for goodness sake. Stop. Think what you're doing, and no doubt, in the eyes of everyone there, She got this moment so wrong, and it gets worse. She then lets down her hair. Totally inappropriate in the culture of the time to do that in this this public uh, setting. She begins to wipe Jesus with her hair. As if that wasn't enough, she begins to pour perfume on his head now. Now it's dripping down sort of over his clothes, and it's filling the room with this, well, stink. I guess it's a nice stink, but we were eating, thank you very much. We don't want to smell it right now. They were shocked and incensed and outraged. In other versions of the story in the Gospels, it says that they rebuked her harshly. You're a total disgrace. This is why strangers like you are not welcome in our meals. This is why there's a limit to my welcome. See, the problem is, folks, many of us feel uncomfortable around strangers, around people that are different to us. Sure, there are exceptions to every rule, but... There's something inside the human condition that makes many of us feel nervous around people we don't know or don't fit into our mould of doing things. Perhaps their culture or their language or the way they dress or their mannerisms. They don't fit into my understanding of normal and that's why I don't like different, thank you very much. We feel challenged by different, perhaps even threatened by different. Who is this person? What are their beliefs? I can't really understand them. I'm not comfortable around them. They're unpredictable to me. They seem perhaps a threat. They disrupt my comfort and my control. And it's a phenomenon, sadly, that's been at the heart of racism and war and intolerance and hatred throughout history. It's preyed upon by populists over and over again. Times of struggle. Someone rises up and goes, we need to be great again, we need to be comfortable again, we need to be truly us again. And it's those people, those people that aren't like us, those people who are different, the Jews, the Romani travellers, those with a different skin colour, those of another religion, those who are economically poorer or uneducated, who have immigrated to our country, they're clearly the problem. They're to blame for our troubles. They're spoiling it, says the demagogue. So we need to do something about them. And it's frightening how powerful this rhetoric is. It creeps into every level of society, subtly or very obviously. 
in politics, in our newspapers, our Facebook feeds, but it can also be in the playground. It can be in your workplaces, it can be in your families and down the pub. It can even be in our life groups or in our churches. I'm not saying it is, but it can be. And yet as followers of Jesus, we've got to be so careful to see when that un-Jesus-flavoured culture creeps into our thinking. You see... We like to dress it up in language about purity and sin and God's will. And before you know it, God's people are going, yes, you're right. They should go. She's not one of us. She's ruined everything. Yet God has something profound to say to us about the stranger, about the person who is different. And he doesn't just say it once. I've printed off in Scripture. I don't have time to go through it. Um, but I just did a quick Google on these throughout the Old Testament, time and time again, Exodus 22, 21, do not mistreat the stranger or oppress them, for you were strangers in Egypt. Leviticus 19:33, when a stranger lives with you in your land, someone not from your land comes to live with you, do not mistreat them. Numbers 15, 15, the communities have the same rules for you and for the foreigner residing among you. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. You and the foreigner shall be the same before the Lord. Deuteronomy 10.19 Therefore love the foreigner, for you are foreigners in the land of Egypt. Deuteronomy 23.7 Do not abhor the Edomite, for he is your brother. Do not abhor an Egyptian, because you lived as a stranger in his country. Deuteronomy 24 Again, do not deprive the stranger or the fatherless of justice. Again and again and again. Beautiful, beautiful scriptures. The Father's Heart coming out over and over and over again. God calling us to live radically against this tendency to fear and reject the stranger, the other, the different. Reminding us that we're strangers too. We have walked through foreign lands. And in one scripture he even says, you and I together, we're strangers in this country, in this world. Our home is not here. It's fascinating, the heart of God, and it's so challenging to us. You see, Jesus said, as Mark told us this morning, that the kingdom of God is like a banquet, where all the people you expect to be welcomed and want to come, well, they don't really care, and therefore they're not included. But all the difficult and tricky and unexpected and uncomfortable and unpredictable people, the different people, well, they're invited. Jesus goes one step further, he says, when you welcome the stranger, you actually welcome me. Whoa. Strangers can unsettle, disrupt, cause uncomfort. This can lead to hostility. However, and hear this this morning, the great call of the gospel is to overcome hostility with hospitality. When it comes to welcoming the vulnerable, the struggling, the different, the challenging, your and my comfort is not always the most important thing there is. According to God, their welcome is ask you, I wonder, are you willing to welcome others even when it makes you uncomfortable? And so this radical Jesus-flavoured welcome beyond our comfort and control also kicks against cultural norms. I'm going to whiz through this bit as quick as I can. Rather than prioritise the comfort of the host, you'll notice, and the guest, Jesus models a welcome here to this woman that utterly kicks against the cultural norms of his time. There is no doubt that she should have not been doing what she was doing. 
And there was no doubt, they, they thought, if Jesus knew who she was, that he'd let her touch him. But of course he knew who she was. He knew her better than anyone. He knew her better than she knew herself. He knew deep in her heart and he decided not only to let her anoint him, he actually stood up and defended her in front of all these people. The easy thing would have, for Jesus would have been just to keep quiet and just go, Ooh, sorry about that, let her go, and then just talk to his disciples about it afterwards. But no, no, right here, right now, Jesus decides this lady is welcome and he wanted everyone to know the flavour of Jesus' radical welcome is powerful and punchy. Not only does he welcome the woman, he actually challenges the host and his culture of superficial welcome. You see her? Hmm? Well, you did not give me any water, but she has given me tears. You didn't give me a kiss, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, she's poured perfume. Therefore, I tell you, your faith has saved you. Go in peace, he says to the woman. See, the radical welcome of Jesus is not accidental, it's not banal, it's not the sort of passive niceness, oh, a general hello to everyone. It's a costly, deliberate, intentional, provocative act of welcoming the outcast and the stranger, even when it kicks against all the norms and challenges and upsets others. And if we as a church, I believe this, want to both know the presence and pleasure and plans of God and being a people of radical welcome far above and beyond our cultural norms is what we're called to be. See, God is at work when we least expect, with those we least expect, and those we often find most uncomfortable. The early church, they absolutely were certain that those who weren't Jews were not included. They knew the boundary of the welcome. It was clear as a whistle. Well, that was until they realised that the Holy Spirit had already shown up and had filled them and anointed them. They were worshipping and praising God, and Peter goes, oh, so God's welcomed them. Think we better catch up with what he's doing then. They completely and utterly missed it. And unless we learn to become a people who extend this radical welcome, then we're liable to miss what God is doing too. Because that's where he'll be. With the outcast, the unexpected, the stranger, inviting them in. It's no surprise to me when I hear the extraordinary stories and testimonies of God's provision for the work of Caris. Those we're meeting with and caring for our friends from Junction 24, the hotel there. I just want to say, anyone's here, guests this morning... From Junction 24, you're so welcome. We're pleased you're with us. It's lovely to have you here. I wonder, are you willing to welcome others even when it kicks against the cultural norms of our society or your political inclinations? Let Jesus have the word on this one. Not the Labour Party or the Conservative Party or any other party. Let Jesus speak on this one. Let's listen to him, shall we? Friends, if we desire more of the presence of God, we need to honour his word to not stop showing hospitality to strangers. Some, when they've done it, have entertained angels, scripture says, just throwing that one in for fun. You never know. I believe if we do prioritise welcoming the strangers of the church, we'll know and enjoy the presence and purposes of God. We'll also discover an unexpected blessing. Because there's no doubt when you get a welcome, you are hugely blessed. I've been welcomed into places where I thought I was going to be told off and I've been welcomed with a big, warm, hey brother, come on in. It's good to see you. The difference that made to me. Fearful about opening the door to a lecture because I was late. The teacher just turning to me going, hey Matt, brother, come in. So glad you're here. Whoa. There's no doubt the blessing 
of welcome is felt by the person who is welcomed. That woman would have been transformed by her welcome. But was she the only one who was blessed with a welcome? You see, Jesus teaches us in Luke 14 that when we welcome the stranger, they can't apparently repay us, but do it anyway. But he says you will be blessed if you do. You will be blessed. You see, there is a blessing that's not just payment. It's far better than money. It's not just the guest who gets blessed when we welcome. We are hugely blessed by them as well. I love this. I haven't got time to go through it. But the ancient Greek word for stranger is this. You may recognize it. Xenos. We get the phrase xenophobia. I'm afraid of the stranger, the other, the different. But dig a little deeper and you discover that the ancient Greek term for guest is also xenos. So a stranger can then become a guest. And dig a little deeper and you discover that the ancient Greek term for host is also xenos. Hey? So this stranger and this guest and this host, it's all blurred beautifully. You see, there was an understanding in ancient society, in many of the societies around the world, this huge respect for the stranger, this huge hospitality of welcoming in, of giving food, because you recognise that this person comes maybe with their hands empty, but filled with gifts. Gifts of love, of conversation, of sharing their journey. Gifts of friendship, of discovering new things. And in that way, in the moment of hospitality, the host doesn't stay high and, and, and mighty and separate. And this stranger, oh, thank you, that's all I need. There is this amazing mix of, well, who is the host and who is the guest here? Because we're both giving and receiving in a beautiful way. And that's exactly what happens in this story. Who really was welcoming who? Jesus was welcoming the woman? Or was the woman welcoming Jesus? Were they both host and guest? Jesus honours, loves and dignifies, includes this lady and defends her. But she blesses him and honours him and loves him. She washes his feet and his hair. She teaches the room what a radical welcome looks like because she knew she was going to get in trouble for it. She just wanted to welcome Jesus. She went for it. The beautiful truth is that had she not been welcomed, then this holy and extraordinary example of welcome would never have been in Scripture. So beautiful was this welcome that Jesus said she'll be remembered for it through all generations for what she's done. So friends, we're going to move to the table now. But I want us to be really clear this morning. Jesus calls us as a church to extend a radical welcome to the stranger. Calls you and I to be people who are orientated towards radically welcoming the excluded, the outcast, the stranger at home, at work, at gym, down the pub. I don't want you to think this is just a call to become nice and insipid, like a tomato with no flavour. Just become a really nice beige person that's like, oh, everyone's welcome. Bland and tolerant to anything, good or bad. No, it's not what Jesus was like. I don't think Jesus finished the the meal going, oh, Jesus was really, uh, uh, Simon finished the meal going, oh, Jesus was really welcoming. No, Simon would have gone, well, that was rude. Well, he didn't, that was not decorum. What was Jesus doing there? You see, Jesus did not welcome those whose intentions were evil. He did not welcome the proud or the arrogant, the willfully unjust. 
Jesus didn't go around saying to everyone, oh, you're all lovely exactly as you are, welcome to do whatever you want. No, he said to the religious bigots, you brood of vipers. He said to those cheating in the temple, get out! See, Jesus is nobody's fool. He does not let wickedness and evil flourish around him in some soft embrace. We see Jesus fighting against selfishness and violence and oppression and injustice. This is the sin that is entrapped and torn and harmed so many in the world that he loves. And yet, and this is a big yet, hear this, for those individuals who knew their brokenness, those who were struggling, those who were oppressed, those who were discounted and lonely, those who were left out and hated and abused, who came in humility to reach out to him, there was always a welcome for them. No matter who they were, whether they were Pharisee, whether they were prostitute, wherever they'd been, whatever they looked like, however they spoke, whatever bed they'd slept in, they came to him in humility. Jesus always extended the most beautiful welcome. And he offers this welcome to the most unexpected and the least likely, the least deserving. So before you and I start drawing up a list of ins and outs, those we should and shouldn't welcome, before we start drawing up the limits of our welcome, let's first take a moment to stop and realise the nature of the welcome that Jesus has already given to you and to me. And we're going to do that now around the communion table. Because the truth is, at the heart of the gospel, it's the most extraordinary welcome, costly, unexpected, undeserved. So much did God want to welcome you to his table, you to his kingdom feast, you into his love and friendship that he was prepared to go to the cross for you. Bear pain beyond your understanding to absorb shame and disgrace that you deserve. He took it on. So much did Jesus want you to be healed and forgiven and part of his family that he hung there for you, he hung there for me. That's the limits of Jesus' welcome. Would you welcome if it cost you everything? Yeah. Go to the cross to welcome you. And as we look at him there, struggling, in agony, as we join in with the mockers, uh, call yourself God, we hear him fighting for our welcome, contending for us, that you and I would be included. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, make a place for them. Father, let them be part of the feast. Father, let them be part of the family. Father, let them be welcome too. And the truth is, if anyone comes in humble brokenness to our God this morning, no matter who you are, then you can look up and see the Father running to you with arms open wide. I'm so glad to see you. Welcome. And so as we turn to communion now, I invite you to humble yourself, all of us. Repent of your pride and selfishness. I will. Repent of the limits of your welcome. I will. Come in awe and trembling before our holy God. And as you do, may you hear the most beautiful words that any outcast and stranger can ever hear. There's a place for you at this table. Come home. You are.